following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. And to know there's a bunch of you that are joining us online this morning. If you have your Bible, grab it and let's go to Genesis chapter 3. I am really thankful that I have my Bible this morning because I discovered a new form of preacher panic between services. I couldn't find my Bible anywhere and I just got it back during Jason's prayer just a minute ago. So uh, my, my heart's beating a little fast this morning. It's going to be interesting. The, the sermon just about got really interesting, but I got my Bible. I'm ready to go. August the 28th. 1963, the Reverend Martin Luther King stood before 250,000 people assembled in front of the Lincoln Memorial. In the lead up to that day, to that historic speech, King struggled with what to say, what what to include. His, His advisors went back and forth on what themes should be addressed in that historic speech. Right up to the time that he went to the podium, Some of the people around him really didn't know what he was going to say. And as he got up and began to to deliver his words, he he kind of struggled at the beginning. He he struggled to find his rhythm. He he struggled to connect with the energy of the audience. He struggled with some of the, the stilted words on the page. But then about 11 minutes in, there was a pause. And Mahalia Jackson, the, the great gospel singer, recognized that, that this message needed a bit of a mid-course correction. And she yelled out, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And Clarence Jones, one of uh, King's advisors, uh, turned to the person sitting next to him and said, these people out here don't know it, but they're about to go to church. King pushed his notes to the left-hand side, took hold of the lectern, and began to tell him about the dream. Did you realize in the printed notes for his speech that day, there was no reference to the dream that we've now come to call the I have a dream speech. But, but he went extemporaneous and started telling about this grand dream that he had. These famous words he spoke. He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they are no longer judged by the, by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Of course, we know what living for that dream cost Dr. King. We know what living for that dream, the dream of a, of a world more like the world that God intends for us, more like the world that God wants us to inhabit. We know that what that cost him. That his home was bombed. That he was thrown into jail. That he was labeled a Marxist. That he was assaulted. That he was stabbed. And that ultimately, on April 4th, 1968, his life was ended with a gunshot. 
all for living for that dream of a better world. I think that Martin Luther King weekend is an appropriate time for us to just acknowledge this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And despite all the progress that perhaps we've made since that time, the the, the dream still remains an elusive dream. That this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And of course, we don't have to look back to the 1960s for evidence of that. Just yesterday, in New York City, a Chinese woman named Michelle Goh was pushed in front of a train and killed in Times Square, New York. Of course, our neighbors um, right up the road at Beit Israel in Colleyville were terrorized as they were gathered together for their Sabbath day prayer meeting. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Humanity is not the way it's supposed to be. And I think that all of us, if we're really honest, if we're really introspective, all of us can say, and I'm not the way that I'm supposed to be. And this morning, we're going to talk about why that's the case. This morning, we're going to talk about how we got here. We're going to talk about what theologians refer to as the fall. And what we find in this little story in Genesis chapter 3 has powerful explanatory impact for helping us understand the kind of world that we inhabit and the kind of people that we are. We're in the second week of a sermon series called The Story of God, where we're walking through the the big story of the Bible, recognizing that many of us grew up with the stories of the Bible, but maybe didn't have the story of the Bible, how it all fits together. And so we're spending these weeks of January and February talking about that big story so that as we go through the remainder of the year, we're unfolding different parts, different movements in our journey to go deeper into our discipleship to Jesus by going deeper into the story of the Bible I mentioned to you last week that sometimes around ninth grade, you were introduced to a a, a drawing, an image that looks something like this. Uh, The story arc, the the plot line, that that all great stories basically follow similar kinds of movements. And the Bible is a great story. It begins with exposition, the introduction to the setting and the main characters. There's an inciting incident that, that introduces a conflict in the story. From there, you get the the rising action, the unfolding of the consequences of that conflict until ultimately the story reaches a climax. How how will that conflict be definitively addressed? And then the falling action, well, what are the the unfolding of the consequences, the climax until ultimately the denouement reaching resolution in the story. And last week we talked about that introduction We talked about the creation, the the, the fact that the Bible begins by establishing the main character, God, and his image bearers, us, the setting in which God has placed us, his good world that God looks at what he has made and says, this is good, this is good, this is good, that this is very good. They were created to live in wholeness and harmony and peace and flourishing, shalom, shalom between us and God, shalom between us and each other, shalom with us and the world, and and even an internal sense of well-being, of wholeness, of peace, the inner sense of shalom. That's the beginning of the story, but today we're going to look at the inciting incident, 
that introduces the conflict. The conflict that is sin. The inciting instance that is the fall. And what we find in this ancient story, and, and let's be honest, it's a strange story. right? If, if, if you don't see this as a strange story, you may just be a little too familiar with it. This is a story of a man named Adam, whose name means human. His wife Eve, her name means life. A man named human and his wife named life. In the Garden of Eden, Eden means delight. A man named human and his wife named life in a garden called delight with a talking snake and two magic trees. This is a strange story. And yet, it's a story that has powerful explanatory power. It makes sense of the kind of world in which we find ourselves and the kind of people we know ourselves to be. Many people in our world today dismiss this ancient story as just that, an ancient strange story. And yet, it so helps us to to understand the reality that we bump up against. So let's look at the story together. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now pause right there. He said to the woman, so here we have it on page what? Page three, a talking snake. And so many people want to just dismiss this story. What, what is this story? It's got a talking snake. Maybe ancient people believed in talking snakes, but we know better today, right? Here's what you need to know. Ancient people also realize snakes don't talk. So what's going on in this story? Well, what we find here is the personification of an evil will at work in the world. It's out to thwart God's good intention for his good world at every turn. That what we find right here at the beginning of the story is there's already conflict behind this story. That Eden is born into a world of cosmic conflict. That there is one, a will at work in the world that seeks to undermine God's good intention at every turn. It's like some of us remember the first time that we saw Star Wars, the original, right? The New Hope, right? The, 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 the crawl goes up the screen and it begins episode four, a new hope. And, and right there in those first two sentences, we're introduced to, to the, the rebels and the, the evil galactic empire. And we go, what's happening? Who are the rebels and who are the empire? Why are they evil? There's already a backstory, and there's already a conflict. And we're thrust into the middle of the story. And that's something of what happens here. That, that as we said last week, this world that God has made is good, but, but it's not perfect. That it's good, but here we have a snake. This personification of an evil will at work in the world that seeks to thwart God's intention at every turn. Now, later in the Bible, we were told that this serpent from of old is Satan, the adversary, the accuser. And if you take that, that will at work against God's intention, if you take that out of the story, if you take that out of the world, you're left with merely naturalistic explanations about both the depth and the breadth of human suffering, of the problem of evil. And I don't think you can account for the reality of both the depth And the breadth of the problem of evil and suffering, apart from recognizing 
that we live in a world of cosmic conflict. There is a will at work in the world that seeks to thwart God's good intention at every turn. And here comes and he speaks to the woman. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any of the tree, from any tree in the garden? Did God really say? There is a question behind the question, underneath the question, maybe a few questions underneath. Can God really be trusted? Is God really good? Is God holding out on you? Is God's way really best? That's what the serpent is implying. Did God really say that you're not to eat from any tree in the garden? Can God really be trusted? And this, my friends, is it's the temptation underneath every temptation. Any temptation that, that you or I face ultimately is the temptation or whether we're going to trust God that his way is best or we're going to trust ourselves that our way is best. The temptation is the temptation to autonomy. Because, of course, th- th- what Satan says isn't, what the snake says isn't what God had actually said, Right? And that's, uh, we, we get a little bit of that in, in verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So what God had said back in chapter two is that here in this garden called delight, this garden of Eden, you are free to experience all the delight that the garden has to offer, this gracious, abundant Generous, delightful provision of God. He shines in all that's fair. One prohibition. This tree in the center of the garden. That's not for you to eat. And we're told back there in chapter two that this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of, of, of good and bad. Right and wrong. And, and as readers of the story, we kind of go, well, wait a second. What? Why is that tree there? Does God not want them to know good and evil, right from wrong, good and bad? No, he does want them to know, but he wants them to know in his way and his time. He wants to to guide them to come to wisdom, to come to moral knowledge. But the temptation is for them to seize it for themselves, to define for themselves what is right and wrong, good and bad. And so she says, we're not supposed to eat from from that one tree and we're not to touch it. And of course, if you're a careful reader, you recognize back in chapter two, when when the Lord made that command, he made it to Adam. Eve Eve wasn't on the scene yet. And so when she reproduces it, she actually adds to what the Lord had said. Now, before we sort of go after Eve and get too upset with her, just I think it's worth remembering that she heard it from him. (laughs) And sometimes in my house, if my wife gets it backwards, And she heard it from me. It's not her that got it backwards, right? And we don't know exactly where this addition came from. And we're not quite sure what to make of it. Is this a really big deal? But some have suggested that this is actually the introduction in the story to the impulse toward um, legalism, right? Adding to what God has said. Adding on to God's um, prohibitions. And this is an impulse that you see running throughout human history. It's an impulse that many of us can find ourselves easily tempted toward. 
that, that we live out of fear of, of crossing God's boundary lines. And so we create new ones. The, the, the impulse that, that says God's line, his prohibition is no drunkenness. So we're going to take 10 giant steps back and create a new line. No drinking alcohol. I mean, it leads to crazy stuff like I remember in the past, it was often common. Uh, God's line was no sexual immorality. So we're going to take 10 giant steps backwards and say no dancing. It's crazy, right? And by the way, if, if you ever saw me try to dance, you'd recognize no one would be tempted, right? <laughs> the, 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 the connection just doesn't, doesn't make sense. And yet there's a tendency that we have to create new boundary lines to keep us from crossing God's boundary lines. She says, we're not supposed to eat it. We're not even supposed to touch it or you will die. And then look what the snake says in response. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're not going to die, surely not, right? So what, what the, the serpent implied in verse one, he makes explicit in verse five. God cannot be trusted. God is holding out on you. God's way is not best, your will, and your way is best, not God's will and God's way, because he's holding out on you. And this is the temptation in the garden, the temptation towards autonomy, and it has such powerful explanatory power precisely because it's the temptation that we all experience to step out from under God's will and God's way, to be a law unto ourselves, and to go with our will and our way. And this leads to the fall. Verse six. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This is the tragic moment in human history where sin enters the story. The conflict of the remainder of the story starts right here. And again, some of, some of our friends, some of our neighbors who didn't grow up with the story may hear this and go, what's the big deal? They ate some fruit. What, why, is that, why is that such a big deal? But the thing is, is that this is so much more than merely about eating a piece of fruit. This is an act of cosmic treason. We learned last week that this man, this woman, they are created to rule over God's good world. Right To see to it that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. They're created to rule on God's behalf as his stewards, but they're not content to be stewards. They want to be kings. They want to go their own way. They want to determine right from wrong for themselves. And so they commit this act of cosmic treason. And, and we refer to this oftentimes as the fall, but that seems almost to imply like, oops, we slipped and fell. Jacques Ayul refers to this as the great rupture. That in this act of cosmic treason, everything comes apart. The shalom that we're meant to experience in relationship to God is ruptured. The shalom that we're meant to experience in relation to each other, ruptured. The shalom that we're meant to experience with relation to the world, ruptured. And, and finally, the, the shalom, the, the inner sense of peace and harmony, wholeness that we're supposed to experience internally, ruptured. Everything comes apart. And sin is like a virus that spreads all throughout God's good creation. 
And then you remember what they do in response? You remember what happens next in the story? They realize they're naked. They, they, they hide. Who do they hide from? First, they hide from, or, or they hide from God, but who do they hide from first? They hide from each other, right? Verse, uh, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. That was an interesting moment, wasn't it? Um, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They had innocence like little children who were not ashamed of their nakedness. And then suddenly they have the insight of a grown adult and they find themselves terrified. They find themselves deeply overwhelmed with a sense of shame. That as soon as sin enters the story, it's immediately followed by shame. Shame is that deep sense that there's something wrong with me, something, something that's so flawed about me that if you saw it, if you knew it, you would reject me. You would find me as unlovely or unlovable. And so shame leads to this impulse to hide. Shame tells us lies about things that are true. The truth is that they had sinned, that they had fallen, they had violated God's good intention. Shame now says, you gotta hide it. Shame now says, you gotta fix it. Because you know what happens, right? They, they realize they're naked and then they begin to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. Have you seen a fig leaf? Right? This is not a great idea. This is completely inadequate to deal with their problem. Plus, fig leaves, they're, they're kind of prickly and they, they have uh, this oil that, that comes off them that, that can burn your skin. I mean, this is a bad idea. And yet... The first impulse of the fallen human heart is to say, I can fix this. I can do something about this. I I can handle this. I I can make life work. They're determined they can fix it for themselves. And once again, this is the tendency of fallen humanity ever since. That ever since then, we've been sowing fig leaves. That there's something in our hearts that, that when we face the reality of our shame that says, I can take care of this. I can, I can fix this. I can make life work. But their attempt to address their problem is fundamentally inadequate. And then they hear God. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Which is just a picture of access and intimacy that God desired to have with his people. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Once again, brilliant idea, right? But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Brilliant idea. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. They feel shame. And so they crouch down behind a bush, behind a tree. To hide from God. Once again, profoundly inadequate response. And yet it's the impulse of the heart. And I love this little detail in the story. That the first thing that God says. Is where are you? Where are you? This is a profound expression of grace. Because it's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to recognize what is true and to respond to it appropriately, to come out of hiding. 
Some of you may have heard me tell the story of my son, Pearson, who's about to be 17. But when he was a little boy, he's the one who, who of all my kids, just he felt all the feels. And he felt all the feels as really, really big feels. And so when Pearson would get in trouble, um, th- th- if he thought mom and dad were upset with him, that his tendency then was to run and hide. And he would run to his room and he only had three hiding places. And they weren't very good at that. Under the bed, behind the shower curtain in the bathroom, or tucked behind a little dresser in his closet. And it didn't take very long at all for mom and dad to figure out exactly where he was going to be. And in those moments where I was just, I was, I was upset, I was mad at whatever it was that he'd done. In those moments where, where I wasn't reflecting the character of my heavenly father, I would go storming into the room and say, Pearson, I know where you are. Come out right now. But in those moments where I was able to be calm and more like my heavenly father, I'd walk in the room and say, Pearson, where are you? Come on out, buddy. God's response here to their sin is, is this profound expression of grace and this invitation to relationship. And I think for all of us, there's an opportunity in this story just to hear God say to you perhaps today, where are you? You know how the story plays out, right? He steps forward and says, here I am. I did it. It's me. <laughs> no. The woman that you gave me, right? The woman that you gave me, he points the finger of blame. And so then God turns to her and says, what is this you've done? And she goes, yeah, I, it was, it's me. I, no. no, she says, the serpent deceived me. And okay, I I did. When sin enters the story, it's immediately followed by shame. And what do they do in response? They hide and they blame. And we have been hiding and blaming ever since. And what we have in this moment, in this story, is what is referred to as the inward turn. Right? The eyes of both of them are open. They feel shame and they turn in upon themselves. That wonderful little phrase we've talked about before. Homo incurvatus in se. The being turned in upon himself. And I believe for every one of us, if we really examine our deepest struggles, if we really examine the sources of shame in our lives, that ultimately it all comes back to that inward turn. The being turned in upon himself, upon herself. This is uh, the story of what Cornelius Plantinga refers to as the vandalism of Shalom. He writes this in his book, not the way it's supposed to be. He says, God hates sin, um, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates Shalom. Because it breaks the peace. Because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. God is for shalom and therefore against sin. In fact, we may safely describe evil as any spoiling of shalom, whether physically, for example, by disease, morally, spiritually, or otherwise. God hates sin. And not just because it violates his rules, his law. God hates sin because he loves his image bearers. God hates your sin, because he loves you. And this is not the way 
that it's supposed to be. That all of us experience in this world the vandalism of shalom in at least three different ways. We experience the vandalism of shalom first because of our own foolish, sinful choices. Right? That we bring this on ourselves just like Adam and Eve. We experience the world and ourselves not the way they're supposed to be because we brought it on ourselves. Second, we experience the vandalism of shalom because of the sin of others over which we had no control. And every single one of us, in ways both great and small, have had our lives impacted by the sin of other people over which we had no control. And third, we experience the vandalism of shalom merely by living life in a fallen world. That sin is like a virus and it is spread throughout God's good world. There's nothing left untouched by it. And we struggle and we suffer because we live in a fallen world. And the reason that it's so important for us to recognize that reality, that we experience it because of our own foolish, sinful choices, because of the sin of others over which we had no control, and because we live in the midst of a fallen world, is because what we must attend to in the spiritual life is how we respond to that reality. Our strategies for coping with the vandalism of Shalom. That when the world's not the way that it's supposed to be, and when I'm not the way that I'm supposed to be, what is it that comes out of me in response to that? Because oftentimes what happens is we, the impulse to try to fix it makes it worse. And then we find ourselves perpetuating this cycle. Now, as we come to the end of this little story this morning, There are three things that I think we need to to pull out from the story that are really important to understand the rest of the story from here. As we continue on throughout the story of the Bible, that we have to recognize these three truths. First, sin is like a virus that none of us can escape. Sin is like a virus that none of us can escape. And and right now we're living at a time where we're all thinking about a virus, right? I mean, I was sitting over there before the, in the nine o'clock service, just looking around the room and, and recognizing this is, this is, Here we are 22 months into this. And here we are in the rise of Omicron. And we all sort of find ourselves even feeling, when is it going to get me or it got me? And the reality in terms of sin is all of us have to say, it got me. Sin is like a virus spread throughout God's creation. This is what theologians refer to as total depravity. And total depravity doesn't mean that I'm as bad as I could possibly be. It means I'm corrupt all the way down. There's no aspect of me. There's no aspect of human souls or human systems that are uncorrupted by the effects of sin. Sin is like a virus from which we can't escape. But second, God is gracious and provides for his people. That we couldn't fix the problem of our own sin But that God is gracious. We see that in that invitation. Adam, where are you? We see it at the end of the story in chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. This beautiful picture of God's provision for their shame. Of course, ultimately, this points ahead to the way in which God would provide for this world. His provision for us through the Lord Jesus. It is because of Jesus' sacrificial death, his taking our sin and shame upon himself, and then his triumphing over sin and death and shame through his resurrection that God has provided for all of us, and we merely trust in what he has done that we could not do for ourselves. 
And then third, God has a dream for the world set right. That from this moment in the story that, that, that sin enters, the conflict begins and the rest of the story is God responding to this conflict. And that ultimately that God has a dream to see this good world that he has made that is now broken by sin, to see it set right. And he invites all of us to participate with him in the realization of that dream. That ultimately will only come as, as he comes and sets it right. But that we now are called to live into that dream to point people towards its ultimate fulfillment. And so we as a people, we, we stand against racial injustice because it doesn't fit with God's dream for a world set right. That, that we respond to the issue of human trafficking because it doesn't fit with God's dream for a world set right. That we engage our city in the issues of of homelessness because homelessness doesn't fit with God's dream for a world set right. That we take the good news of the gospel to our neighbors and the nations because God has a dream that this world will one day be set right and that dream we can trust will come to fruition because of the work of Jesus. And that we are called now to participate in the realization of that dream by taking the good news of the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Sin is a virus from which none of us escape. But God is gracious, has responded to our problem that we couldn't fix ourselves. And God has a dream for the world set right and he invites us to participate in it. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.